0: So if you want to go ahead and grab your swords of the Spirit, we're going to be in Psalm 72 this morning. Psalm 72, last week we looked at uh, Psalms 42 and 43 together because they begin uh, Book 2 of the Psalms. Well, Psalm 72 is the the last Psalm of Book 2, so we're looking at the first and last Psalms. And today we're going to see how these, uh, the, the first and the last psalms uh, tie together, uh, brings unity to the whole uh, book. Uh, and so as you read in your own devotions the psalms in between, you're going you're gonna to see these themes uh, that we find here. And so let's begin by reading Psalm 72 uh, together. I'll start at the top here and we'll read the whole thing. Psalm 72 of Solomon. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all generations. May he be like rain that falls on the new mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish, and peace abound till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him, From oppression and violence He redeems their life, and precious is their blood in His sight. Long may He live. May gold of Sheba be given to Him. May prayer be made for Him continually, and blessings invoked for Him all the day. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. May people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended. That last line there, of course, is an indication that book two uh, used to be the last uh, book of the Psalms, but now now there are five, of course. They they were compiled a little later after book two. So there is Psalm 72 for you. This is the word of the Lord that we are going to meditate on today. I want to invite you to keep your Bibles open because today we're going to be visiting a lot of passages of Scripture, some of them a little long, and you might want to read along with me uh, when you can. They'll also be up on the screen, too, but uh, a lot to take note of today. Well, as we dig in here to, to this amazing psalm, uh, we uh, have to have a little bit of background here to kind of set the uh, stage for us. The, the ancient Hebrews longed for a king who would finally deliver them from their enemies. We're reminded of that point of view every single Easter when we recall the triumphal entry, you remember, uh, when Jesus goes into Jerusalem for the last time and he goes through the crowds and and we hear along with him the loud cries of hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, hosanna in the highest. That's from Matthew 21 Uh, You see, the people were expecting a king who would free them politically from the oppression of the Romans. But, of course, Jesus was not on his way to an earthly throne. He was on his way to a shameful death in order to free us from the oppression of sin. But just like the Jews, of course, we, we want our earthly rulers to live up to the ideals of righteousness that we find in Scripture so that we the people will be blessed in an atmosphere of godly justice and peace that certainly is a reasonable and and right thing to desire but alas (laughs) we live in a broken and imperfect world don't we and more to the point we the people are why this world is imperfect we and our leaders and we make it imperfect because of our own sin and rebellious rebelliousness toward god and so This is exactly what the ancient Hebrews found, both in themselves and in their rulers. Everybody back then was painfully aware that even God's anointed kings were capable of horrible crimes against God. In the long line of succession of kings after David, Scripture records only a handful of them who did what was right in the eyes of God. When you read through this sad tale of God's people beginning in 1 Samuel uh, and, and over a span of seven or 800 years, we see king after king who did not do what was right in the eyes of God. King Jehoiakim is one example of many in 2 Kings twenty three thirty seven, It says, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. And so the result of the king's disobedience, namely their tolerance for idols, if not outright worship of them, was that the people worshipped idols too. You see, the king uh, sinned and then he led his people into sin. And King David, one of the few who generally did what, what was right in the eyes of God, when he sinned, he brought chaos and war to the nation of Israel. And so all to say, there's never been a perfect earthly king. There's never been a perfect president. There's never been a perfect governor or mayor or civic leader. There's never even ever been a perfect pastor. And you know what? There never will be. It just ain't going to happen, is it? We are all sinners. We're all imperfect. Every single one of us, no, no matter what our position in life, is in the same need of help and grace from our God. And so our world, as it has always been, is filled with injustice and agitation and corruption. All we got to do is read the news on our phones or watch it on TV, and it's just downright depressing. We see this long list of, of examples of corruption and scandal. It's just, it's everywhere. And so on the face of it, as we look for someone to hope in, it seems like, From a worldly perspective, there isn't anybody to put our hope in, right? But you know what? That didn't stop the person who wrote Psalm 72 from hoping. What he's doing is he's praying for the ideal king, a king that has not happened yet, and he can only imagine. He's praying for a king who's going to bring true justice and righteousness to the whole world. The psalmist understood the lesson that we saw last week in Psalm 42 and 43, that no matter what life looks like to us right now, God is going to vindicate our persevering hope in him. That's how book two of of Psalms uh, began. Book two closes in Psalm uh, 72 with a similar thought, and that is that our persevering hope is in God's anointed king, who is the ideal and perfect king, Christ is the answer to this prayer that we're about to meditate on that is Psalm 72. But while we cannot read Psalm 72 as a prophecy about Christ, we can, in retrospect, identify our Lord in every single detail of this psalm as we look upon a righteous and just king. Uh, This prayer that that hopes for a perfect king teaches us about the kind of Messiah our Lord is. And so here's the big idea of Psalm 72 When our Messiah returns, the whole world will be subject to him, and his justice and righteousness is going to saturate everything, including us. And so we can divide Psalm 72 up like this into. Uh, four major points plus the concluding blessing. Our first point is in verses one through seven where we see that our Messiah will judge righteously and bring justice to everybody. Our point, uh, second point is that our Messiah will rule the world. We see that in verses eight through 11. Our third point in verses 12 through 14 is that our Messiah is worthy because he compassionately delivers the poor and our fourth point, is that our Messiah will endure forever. He is going to reign forever and ever and ever. We see that in verses 15 through 17, and then there's the concluding blessing at the end. As you know, as we are going to read about justice and righteousness filling the earth, we have to acknowledge once again that it doesn't fill the earth now, even though Christ has already come. So what good does it do for us to sit around hoping for justice and righteousness? Well, I think the answer is in our take-home lesson. The bottom line of all of this is that our faith in Christ is not just based in the past. We don't just look back on the cross. But our faith is also based on what God is going to do in the future. Is More specifically, what our King, our Messiah, is going to do when he fulfills his plan of redemption. And that gives us a great deal of hope. And so let's go ahead and dig in. We'll look at our first point, that our Messiah will judge righteously and bring justice and peace to all. And by the way, at the top you see that it says that this song is of Solomon. We don't really know if this means he wrote it or if it was for him. It's up to debate. But what's important is what the psalm says. And so let's go ahead and dig in. We'll look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. The psalmist is praying that the king is going to have the same understanding of justice and righteousness that God has. Another way of putting this is something like this. Give the king your justice and righteousness so that he can judge and so that he can do so righteously. In other words, without God's help, it's not possible for him to be a godly king. But since he is God's anointed king, he's God's representative, and he should think and act uh, like God. And what does God do? Well, he judges people righteously. Psalm 711a says, God is a righteous judge. In Revelation 16, 7 says, uh, and this is John the Revelator, uh, you know, he's trying to describe this vision, and he he heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so we see that Scripture uh, very much supports the idea that God judges righteously. It is the prerogative of a holy God to judge us and to do so righteously. The Hebrew word for righteousness in the opening verses of Psalm 72 describes what God is like and how his people, namely the king, should act and think like him. God is undeniably righteous. Likewise, he expects his people to sow righteousness and in return, they're going to receive righteousness too. Hosea 10.12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. What a beautiful image. Righteousness is raining down from God. So how much more ought God's anointed king to set the example of righteousness? Because when he does, he becomes God's instrument of righteousness so that all the people are blessed. And this is exactly what the psalmist is hoping for and longing for. He's longing for a holiness of character and action on the part of one whom God has appointed to rule this people. Such a king is a blessing to the people. You know, I think our, our families are kind of a microcosm of that idea. You know, we moms and dads, when we're, when we're both in harmony in our walk with the Lord... Doesn't family life go a whole lot better? We know that from experience. But we also know from experience that when mom and dad are out of step with God, the life of the whole family suffers. So how do we keep in the righteous steps of God? Well, at the most basic level, we do it simply by obeying God, by doing what he tells us to do. The, the, the prayer of the first two verses of Psalm 72 are like David's prayer for his son as he charges him to build the temple. This is in First Chronicles 22. And listen how he's, he's telling his son Solomon to obey God so that he'll be a blessing. Only may the Lord grant you discretion and understanding that when he gives you charge over Israel, you may keep the law of the Lord your God. Then you will prosper if you are careful to observe the statutes and the rules that the Lord commanded Moses for Israel. And so there are blessed consequences to living in obedience for God, not just for yourself, but for the people around you. We we prosper not not, not saying that God's going to give us a lot of money, right, or the fancy new car that we want. But God's going to give us peace with him. And therefore, he's going to give us peace with those who are under our authority and even even peace with those who are above us. And the same is true for kings. The result of his obedience should be justice and righteousness. And this means that the king rules on the behalf of the oppressed. And he brings peace and righteousness to all the people in the land. This is exactly what verse 2 is about. The psalmist is asking that God would enable the king to be a righteous judge of the poor. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. These are God's people. They don't belong to the king or anybody else. But not everyone in God's kingdom is socially and culturally weak. But some of them are. And we've got to remember that. Some of them are. And they need the righteousness and justice of God the most, don't they? They're in the greatest need. And those of us who are spiritually weak need God's righteousness and justice as well. And this is why our Messiah, the king that this psalm is hoping for, cared so much for the needy during his earthly ministry. The Gospel of Luke records Jesus' words when he read from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so there you go. Jesus came to proclaim the good news to the poor, to the spiritually poor, just like you and me. But he also also cared a great deal about the people in Jewish culture who were diminished and rejected. He cared for people like the poor widow who gave all she had and for little children. He cared for the lepers. He cared for the woman who had an issue of blood that nobody really seemed to care about for 12 long years. He cared for tax collectors and prostitutes. These are the kinds of people that our godly king cares about, and so should we. So back to our psalm, the psalmist is praying for a king who treats the poor in the same way that God does. A king who rules on behalf of even the lowliest of God's people. And not only that, a godly king causes even the land to be prosperous. He causes the poor uh, to be cared for and, and, uh, and blessed, but he also, a godly king, also blesses the land. This is an interesting concept. Look in verse 3. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. What the psalmist has in mind is that the natural result of righteousness is abundant harvest and peace in the land. You see, the Hebrew word for prosperity in the Hebrew is shalom. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Shalom. This can be translated, as we're going to see in verse 7, as peace. Shalom uh, brings together the whole of life, political, economic, social and spiritual, brings peace among all of those areas of life to make our lives uh, at at peace with God. And so that means that we're living in harmony with God's law and we, we benefit from that that living that way and being at peace with God is a blessing to us. And so the idea of, uh, is peace between God and his creation, including both mankind and the earth. So mankind is at peace with the land, and the land is at peace with God and, and also with mankind. This is the, the kind of righteousness and justice that our king brings us. And this is exactly what Paul is asserting in his beautiful hymn about our Messiah in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Listen to this. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, there's an interesting thing to think about as we try to comprehend what it means that Christ is going to reconcile all things, that he's going to make peace by the blood of his cross. What will the earth be like when he does that? What will life be like when he does that? John the Revelator gives us a picture of what that looks like, although we can't truly comprehend it until the day we actually see it. Everything in the new heaven and earth is going to shine with the glory of God. I can't wait to see that. Chapter 22 of Revelation tells us about a river of life and the tree of life. Revelation 22, verses 2 through 5. Get your brains around this. This tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and, and And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Wow, that's a wild picture, isn't it? That's just wild. But, but all to say, we, we get the gist of how when everything is reconciled by our Messiah, there's going to be peace and abundance in spades. In the the new earth where Christ reigns, even the land and everything in it is going to be fruitful. There's not going to be anything that's ungodly. And it's a land that's going to be dominated in the most beautiful way by a righteous throne. We tend to think of thrones sometimes as oppressive things. But in this case... In this case, the land is going to be dominated by a righteous throne. We're going to be dominated by a righteous throne. And we're going to be in a land that is perfect for gathering around that throne to worship the king. And one reason all this is going to happen is because our Messiah is also going to crush our enemies. His enemies, since that, of course, is part of the responsibility of God's anointed, right? That's part of the responsibility of a king, of a leader of a nation, is to protect the people. And so, in verse 4 of Psalm 72, may he defend the cause of the poor of the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. You see, not only does a godly king care about the needy, but he saves them from oppression. Likewise, Jesus didn't just care about lepers from a distance, but he healed them too. God doesn't just care about our sin. He provides a Messiah to save us from our sins. Our Messiah is also going to crush our greatest enemy, and we find it in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And that moment will come when our Messiah throws death and Hades into the lake of fire, Revelation 20, 14. And in doing that, he gives us life. And that's what the next three verses describe, verses 5 through 7. Since the king's righteous reign will have an eternal effect on the spiritual life of the people. And this is what the psalmist is praying for. He's praying for Uh, this effect to take place and he's praying for the king's eternal reign he's praying that the the king will be as refreshing and life-giving as rain is for the grass and that his people are going to worship him forever that peace will abound and that all things will be reconciled to god through the king's reign now of course the psalmist could not imagine the person and work of jesus christ But as the Holy Spirit inspired him to write this psalm, he could imagine the effect that such an ideal king would have. Everything is going to be reconciled to God through Christ, our King, our Messiah. And the righteousness of Christ gives life to us. We're poor and needy. We're in need of that life that he brings. And he does that by defending and delivering us from oppression. And that, of course is why we reverentially fear God. We bow down and we worship him because he is the one who saves us and he is the one who's going to rule the world. And that brings us to our second point. Our Messiah will rule the world, the whole world, every bit of it. Verses 8 through 11. The psalmist prays that God will establish the king's absolute authority over everything. In verses 8 through 11, Verse 8 says, may he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This would have seemed like just an impossible prayer for the psalmist. He's asking God to establish the king's rule over, over a vast territory, isn't he? Every square inch of the whole world. Verses 9 through 11, he makes it clear how difficult this is that every nation is going to have to submit to God's anointed king. This is, this is a hard prayer to pray when, when from experience he's, the psalmist is looking around and seeing all these kings who have failed in their leadership both spiritually and politically. But in verse 9, he prays that surrounding peoples would bow to the king, even enemies would prostrate themselves on the ground, and as he says, lick the dust. In verse 10, he prays that even far away nations pay tribute to the king. A tribute is a payment by the weaker, signifying submission to the stronger. And so the psalmist is praying for domination over nations that are as far off as Tarshish, that's one of the places that, that he knew of that was seemed far away. And so he, he's praying that that the king is going to have domination over those nations as well. This is in the western part of the Mediterranean Sea. He's also praying that that nations and lands in the distant east are gonna bring gifts to the king. This is what happened when the Queen of Sheba gave Solomon extravagant gifts in Second Chronicles nine. She could see that Solomon in his wisdom as God's anointed king was able to to maintain righteousness and, and justice. And so she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. There were no spices such as those that the queen of Sheba gave to king Solomon. They were the best. She gave the best of what she had. And the point of all of this is what the psalmist makes clear in verse 11. May the king, may all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Now, of course, the world is never going to produce such a ruler. That's only a possibility in James Bond movies, I think. You know how the villain, he's always wanting to take over the world, and he's always either out to destroy it or to rule over it or both. That's only a possibility in James Bond movies but it is also a possibility with our Messiah. And our Messiah will defeat his enemies. He's going to rule the entire world and his enemies are going to lick the dust. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16. This is powerful stuff. Take this in. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, Paul kind of completes this picture for us in Philippians. We read this during our worship. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Messiah will indeed rule the world. He is the answer to the prayer of Psalm 72. But you know, even as he achieves that fierce victory, the reason that he's worthy of our praise is also because of his compassion. And this brings us to our third point in verses 12 through 14, that our Messiah is worthy because he compassionately delivers the poor. And so the psalmist is now turning from his prayer simply to describe the king's righteous attitude toward the weak and the oppressed. Just look at the verbs that are in these verses that punctuate his care for the oppressed. In verse 12, he delivers them. In verse 13, he has pity on them and saves them. In verse 14, he redeems them. In verse 12, he also hears the call of the needy. He hears their cry for help. In verse 14, he considers the life of the poor and the and needy as precious. Their lives are precious to him. And so this is why the king goes to bat for his people. It's because he loves them and he sees their pitiful condition and he has mercy on them and he saves them. This is all describing a king who knows his people intimately. Intimately. He cares for them. He values their whole person, both spiritually and physically. He wants shalom for them. He wants there to be peace between them and God. You know, one way to think about this is to, is to remember a time when, when you've been Helpless. Have you ever been that way? Have you ever been helpless? Have you ever been at the mercy of somebody who has power over you and there's nothing you can do about it? It's a terrible feeling to know that you're depending on the mercy of somebody who might not be merciful to you. But you see, our God is not like that, and neither is a godly king. He acts with compassion by delivering and saving and redeeming. The point is, is that the king rescues the helpless from any kind of power that threatens them, whether it's a foreign enemy or our common foe of sin, or as we face the enemy of death. And so it is with our Messiah, right? He's a fierce warrior, yes. And he goes to war against the spiritual forces of darkness. He, he goes to war against anyone who opposes true righteousness and justice. But in his compassion and care for us, he also sees us. And he hears the cry that we have for help. Oh, help us, Lord. Help me. Help me. He delivers the needy when he calls. Just imagine what that must have been like for the woman who had the issue of blood for 12 years in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is in the middle of an urgent call to come to the bedside of Jairus' daughter who's on her deathbed. The crowd is pressing around Jesus, some of them simply because they're excited to see him, and others because they just want Jesus to hurry up and get to the bedside of the dying daughter. In, in, in this crowd is, is a poor, neglected woman, she has spent every penny she has on, on physicians and doctors trying to get well, but she's still, she's still sick. None of the Jewish leaders know how to heal her either. And in fact, the implication is they don't really care to try because she's an unclean woman. That's a double whammy. She's unclean, so she can't worship with, with others. And she's also a woman. She's of a lower status, and the Jewish leaders really just overlook her. They're just satisfied to ignore her suffering. But in the middle of all of that chaos, Jesus supernaturally senses a very brief touch on the hem of his garment. She's she's thinking that if she can just touch it, she's going to be healed. And you know what? That's exactly what happens. She's right. But Jesus also knows what she did. Supernaturally. Luke 8, verse 46, Jesus said, Someone touch me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. You see, Jesus wants the woman to come forward so that everyone can see her faith and hear her testimony. Her testimony that this great teacher, this man of high status, has had compassion on her. Your faith has made you well, Jesus tells her. And now she's no longer unclean. She can return to worship. She's been reconciled. She's at peace. She's at peace with God and with man. Shalom. That's what the compassion of our king does. And and, and it's the same compassion that he has for you and me. For that woman and for us, for anyone who submits to him as a poor and needy person. Our Messiah delivers us through a mind-boggling act of compassion and mercy because of his righteousness. Romans 5, 6-10 For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. That's who our Messiah is. He is the one who's worthy because he compassionately delivers the poor. He cares for us because he loves us. And he saves us from the greatest danger in all of the universe, the wrath of God. He has made peace between us and the living God. And that brings us to our final point. Our Messiah will endure forever in verses 15 through 17. The psalmist sets out to reiterate the blessing of God on the whole of creation and on his people because of the king. For the psalmist, as he thinks of an earthly king, that means more gifts and gold from Sheba for the king and for all kinds of tribute from every nation. It means that the king is supported by the prayers of the people and that the land will be fruitful and abundant and people are going to thrive like the grass of the field. Verse 16. All of this reminds us of the reconciling power of a godly king. To bring shalom, to bring that total peace and harmony between God and his creation. In verse 17, the psalmist prays that the name of the king is going to endure forever. Uh, That is, that the effect of his righteousness is never going to cease because his reign will never cease. And so the psalmist invokes a blessing in the last part of verse 17. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. This recalls God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so the point is that God will fulfill that promise and every single promise that he's made. The psalmist can't see how that's going to happen. But in verse 17 of Psalm 72, he's praying what he knows will be true when those promises are fulfilled. And this is what's true. It's, what's true is that the blessing of the king whom he's describing will be so tremendous that it's going to mean eternal peace. And that's why anyone who bows to worship him will give him their utmost praise and honor forever and ever and ever because we're going to be with him forever and ever and ever. And so while the psalmist is thinking merely of an earthly king, we of course know and bow down to the one who fulfilled all of God's promises. We bow down to our Messiah, the King of Kings. Earthly kings come and go, but the kingdom of the King of Kings is never going to go away. This is exactly what the angel Gabriel told Mary about her baby boy in Luke chapter 1. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so it's true. It's true. If we believe Scripture, it is true that our Messiah will endure forever and that our Messiah is the answer to the prayer of Psalm 72. And so as we go back through our points, our Messiah will also judge righteously and bring justice to everyone. Our Messiah will also rule the world and our Messiah is also worthy because he compassionately delivers the poor. The big idea of all of this is that when our Messiah returns, he's going to bring the whole world into submission, and his justice and righteousness is going to just saturate everything, including us. And what a great day that'll be. But our Messiah hasn't returned yet, has he? You know, Doug, a few minutes ago, read the classic, uh, a classic passage in Hebrews about how Christ has already won the victory over sin. But all things are not yet subject to him. We live in between the already and the not yet. We look back with faith on the cross and forward with faith to the day when death is dead. So, what do we do now? What do we do here in the in between? What do we do with all this? Well, I think what Psalm 72 teaches us is to live by faith faith in the God who always keeps our promises. You see, the psalmist was praying in faith that God would bring about this perfect king. And so our faith teaches us that hope is not a trivial thing, that that we're not wishing for a mere possibility. Hope means that we wait patiently but expectantly for God to work. Hope means that we are sure that it's going to happen. It just hasn't happened yet. Romans 8, 24 and 25 For in this hope, that is salvation, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so that hope gives us the strength to persevere. We wait with patience. We know that we have an eternity of true righteousness and justice to look forward to when we bask in the glory of our Messiah. And that puts the suffering of this life into perspective, doesn't it? It's the kind of hope that's the foundation of our faith. Hebrews 11.1 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And what that means is that we're firmly persuaded about the thing we desire. Namely, that God is faithful and that Christ will come again. Christ will come again. Christ will come again. Will come again. Amen? Amen. God wants us to live by faith because when we do, we bring glory to him. We prove that we trust his promises. And that's what the whole of chapter 11 of Hebrews is all about. We see heroes of the faith from Abel to Moses to Rahab and many, many more who trusted in what was promised without seeing the promises fulfilled. Hebrews 11, 39, and all of these, all of these people, Abel, Moses, Rahab, and so on, all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. In other words, they were looking ahead too, just as we are to the future. They didn't know who the Messiah would be. We know, but we still have some things to wait for. They didn't know how God would fulfill his promises And yet here is how firmly they were persuaded of their hope. These men and women who were living by faith. Just listen to this. They were living by faith. This is in in Hebrews 11, toward the end of the chapter, beginning in verse 33. These people, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, in all of this, they did without knowing how God was going to carry out His plan of redemption. They did all of this in faith, through faith in, in their God knowing that he was going to use all of those things for his glory. They persevered in their faith. Their hope was secure, and they did great things for God. And so just imagine, just imagine what God will do through you when you persevere, as you keep hoping in the Messiah's return, and as you pray impossible prayers like Psalm 72 As you look forward to this future, and as Hebrews 12, 2 puts it, when you keep looking to Jesus, imagine what God is going to do through your faith. Better yet, find out what God is going to do through your faith as you persevere and as you hope in him. And so the bottom line, the thing we take home today, is that our faith in Christ is not just based on the past. We don't just look back on the cross, as beautiful and essential as the cross is. We don't just stay there, do we? We have something to look forward to. And that is what Christ will do when he comes again, to gather us to himself, and to create a new heaven and a new earth, and complete his plan of redemption. That is something to look forward to and that is something to live for and to persevere for. Amen? Well, let's close with the blessing, the benediction that is at the end of Psalm 72 that not only closes the psalm but also closes book two. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse.